and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about film watching and filmmaking made by film lovers for film lovers. And we tend to look at a different film each week and view it from the perspective of various themes or ideas that get thrown up by that film. This season, the whole of season three, we're doing the mini introductions to various directors and the mini season that we're on at the moment is the British director Ben Wheatley. More on his latest film later but first we always start with what else we've been watching this week so Rob how are you? I'm good I've actually been to cinema twice this week. Whoa. Feels like a personal record. Um once, I'm sure if anyone follows me, they'll know we had the first live show for the Space to Continue. I went to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, so that's a, obviously an old classic movie, but it's brilliant. It doesn't really need much more introduction than that. Uh, there's a reason why it's the classic that it is. My second one was actually last night. I went out to the real cinema and I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So uh, that was a experience and a half, shall we say. It's not... Uh, it's okay. It's a good film. It's a good, fun two hours of your life. It doesn't have any of the nuance of Jurassic Park, and it doesn't really have the doesn't achieve even the heights of something like Jurassic World. Um, it's fun. It's nice to see these characters that you had from the first film kind of coming to play again, and the new characters to come together. Um, but it is, it's feeling like it's reaching the bottom of the barrel a little bit in terms of of its of its longevity. So it wasn't one I'd overly recommend unless, but not for a cinema trip, but not for you and I with our limited resources. But it's uh, one that's, it's good fun to our movie. Catch it on Netflix, catch it on DVD, I'd say. Okay, right. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I haven't really watched anything this week, so I'm stretching the parameters of this week's media. I'm going to talk about a podcast I started and finished listening to. It's not very long, the first season. Uh, it's called Troll Play, and it's a comedian, Alice Fraser, and two of her friends who are also stand-up comedians, Cal Wilson, who is New Zealand-born, and Sammy Shah, who is also Australian. And they take, and as you would expect, given that one is a non-white Australian and the other two are prominent female comedians they get a fair amount of stick online and it was born from this idea that maybe we should take that idea of negativity and make something positive about it and I really appreciate that I mean in the past week I've got rid of Facebook from my phone and I feel quite liberated about it and I'm enjoying feeling less less not not less connected, but less connected in that way. And I realised that a lot of the time I spent on Facebook, I wasn't really doing anything. I haven't posted anything on Facebook for months. Um, so it was just sort of consuming, but not really engaging mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the time I was spending online. And this podcast, Trollplay, does a lot to turn this into something good Um I believe this strapline is taking the manure of the internet and bringing forth the flowers of joy. 
and it's it's just nice to listen to something that is gently poking fun at people being idiotic online but is doing it in a genuinely positive and life-affirming way so that's my recommendation for this week excellent is troll play troll play excellent lovely as sam mentioned there we are looking at ben wheatley currently we looked at his first film darren terrace last week and this week moving on to his next film kill list now i'm going to issue a repeated warning after last week and a follow-up a little bit this movie we will be treating with spoilers from the go because it's impossible to talk about it, review it, analyse it without talking about those. And it is a film that does feature scenes of violence and death and implications of child abuse and child murder. So it is not for everyone. If that isn't your cup of tea, feel free to pick up next week. But if it is, we're going to be talking about the film Kill List. List is the tale of two hitmen, essentially both ex-army, who pick up a job and go on the way to kill three people. Along the way, their their day-to-day lives get revealed. You meet their wife, child, girlfriends, and you see the minutiae of, of their lives, as well as the job itself taking some darker, more horrific, more nightmarish, and more unexplained turns um i don't want to say too much at this point obviously because we'll talk about more of the twists and turns and the revelation of the story as we dive into our reviews and analysis but as someone for whom horror and this kind of film isn't your normal cup of tea sam how did you find kill list well i i have to say this is as you said this is not necessarily my cup of tea although i have gone on record before as really enjoying various sort of more psychologically inclined horror like uh, Get Out from last year, for example. And I did really enjoy the aspects of this film that were like that. I thought the place that it ended up, although, I mean, we, we will talk about just how insane parts of this film are. Um, but the the denouement with um, spoiler alert, Neil Maskell killing his wife and child, there was something very I'm not sure how to put it, very sort of psychologically troubling about that. It wasn't just a standard slasher mm. film, so I I really I won't say enjoyed because that was a bit horrible, but I really appreciated the psychological aspect of this film. As I've suggested, there were parts of this film that I sort of didn't get on with, but really didn't understand. Um, But I was sort of quite happy to go with it, and I appreciated that by the end this was doing really... I'd say this was doing really interesting things without necessarily being a particularly enjoyable film, but I can understand how this is a film that would necessarily stick with you as it as it did for you. Mm. So I, I would agree with what you're saying there, I think a little bit, that this is a film that 
the film itself isn't enjoyable. And I think it's a strange, it'd be a strange film to say that you enjoy it. In the same vein as things like Requiem for a Dream, Irreversible, these kind of films, they aren't... The film itself is an enjoyable film. But it is a good film, and it is a film that creates emotions that I enjoy the, the catharsis of it, if you see what I'm saying. Mm. It isn't like watching a fun, happy film. It certainly is not a fun, happy film. As you mentioned there, it certainly ends in a very horrific um, and kind of brutalistic way. But for me, I, I enjoyed this. And then we touched on it last week, talking about Down Terrace and how he injected social realism into a otherwise gangster-filled movie. And here I feel that... He's kind of done the same a little bit, but in this time injecting into A, a Hitman movie, and B, a folk horror movie. Um, so we do have, you know, the first half of the film is very domestic life. It's domestic rows and being a dad and dinner parties. And it's kind of, you get that feeling, like we had last week down Terry, the feeling of dread comes early on. Uh, mm. With the, the, the guest of Fiona who starts carving symbols and stealing blood. Um, and this film feels like it's like, this is getting weird and it gets weirder and weirder from there. Um, I think it's one of those films where it seeks to be confusing. It seeks to not have the answer. The film doesn't offer any kind of real catharsis or any kind of real conclusion to its story, Um, or at least any kind of satisfactory conclusion in terms of the narrative of what actually happened and what was going on. It does feel like it has completed its story in terms of the actual chronologically of what happened. And I think that works for it. I think if this film had a big sort of, you know, final act in which everything was explained, it would lose some of its power and its staying power as a movie. I like the fact this film kind of, I watched it again today and, you know, having, I've seen this film three times now and I'm still not sure about certain things. I'm still not sure of what it's saying and what it's doing. Um, I think I've got a handle on what happened and I think I've got a handle on some of the ideas it's trying to throw together. Um, but I don't think that it's, it doesn't allow itself to be pigeonholed or explained very easily. And I think the director has gone on record saying that he, has, he doesn't want to explain the movie. He wants it to be a talking point, mm. which works because we're doing a podcast about it. Some, something that you picked up on there is that, I mean, it's about an hour, just over an hour, before anything actually happens in this film. Mm. It's very sort of simmering tension and you said the... the dinner party and okay you have Fiona behaving really quite oddly but until the hour mark nothing really happens which is I mean it was a surprise for me going into this because I didn't really I didn't really know what this was about I didn't know anything it was about but I assumed from knowing that it was a gangster film well British gangster film ish and a Ben Wheatley film um, I had sort of expectations for it and I thought it would be sort of Neil Maskell being persuaded to do a job and we get into that fairly quickly if something, mm. maybe something went wrong thereafter but that would be what the narrative would be about it didn't feel like that at all it was sort of the job itself starts around the hour mark before that you have lots of I think maybe he his his mate gets in contact a bit earlier than that, but nothing really happens in the first two thirds of the film. 
It was really surprising. Yeah, I think that. But I think that's part of what it's trying to say is this: the mundanity of evil. And then we talk about. It, it's, I, I see a very clear line between something like Down Terrace and this. It is that these these men who are in many worlds horrific people that they are paid killers, um, mm. and they don't care really why they're killing. Um, they, they talk about the, when they're killing the priests. You know, maybe he he did something, but they don't know. They don't, they're just do, killing him because they're paid to kill him. Then when we get to the librarian mm. um, and the artifacts of that hit, then they certainly feel like there's there's some morals there, and, and certainly the, his his killing of of the filmmakers is horrific, and but it feels somehow more kind of justified. Like we we, we are the idea of an avenging violent angel is one that Hollywood has forced us for years, um, and here we are forced to confront that as a kind of a uh, well, what what what's the real version of that? What what is the man who can go in and, and break up a what I'm presuming was some sort of child prostitution ring or child pornography ring? Isn't a nice person. That that, that kind of violence is is brutal and it's bloody. But these people aren't heroes um, in the traditional sense. In any way sense, they are violent, horrible people. But it feels like they come up against this great unknowable evil um mm. and I, I i wrote down um in my notes with a big line of the cthulhu question mark um now obviously this isn't a a lovecraftian story it is certainly it's a long way from lovecraftian story but it does feel like that kind of moment you get in a lot of lovecraft stories in which the the man is faced is forced to confront his insignificance in the wider world and it has that moment of like these these are two men doing their job um, and then they come up against real evil um, or a, a force of nature, and they are powerless in its wake. They are they, they are but you know passengers on the ride. And there was this feeling I had of just like the inevitability of where this film went, um, and there was never really any other option of where it was going to go because they they were up against things they couldn't understand, they couldn't fathom. Yeah, it's. I think the re- the the way that Wheatley gets there is by th- building that throughout the film, and it's not just something you see, sort of with the Moon in the third act. This is something you've had all the way through, and I was thinking about um, Neil Maskell's outburst at the, at the dinner party right at the beginning. That I mean, is this about Iraq or about? shall snipe at him or about maybe the fact that he feels emasculated by not being in the army anymore there's something weird to do with masculinity there mm. or is it just something else that he's reacting maybe maybe he he doesn't like feeling like a cog in the machine and that's what the I mean Egal makes it clear that he's gone a bit rogue that when when they they do the job, they start doing the job. Neil Maskell's behaving in a way that is unprofessional. Mm. You think, well, maybe this is him losing it a bit because he's just had enough of being part of this thing. And it's it's I suppose it's connected to what you said there because it's he's feeling frustrated that he's being borne onward by forces that he can't control. But uh, part of me, I mean, obviously, the, the, the Kiev mission is mentioned quite a lot um, as this unseen, unknown 
mission that went awry in some manner um, and left him out of work for unable to work for eight months and has repercussions. And Gal brings it up after he goes off peace and um, after killing the librarian. And you feel like there's a similar situation there that he's kind of gone off the rails. But I think that's, with me, looking at the, the, the work, work of the cult that we see at the end, that I think is why... Like, that's what helps select him. So, like, that's why he's their chosen one. Um, that's why he's mm. he's the one that they are training and taunting and building up to this. Um, they're, they're, he's their tool of reconstruction um, because of the, 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 because of the the simmering resentment in him. And, and just talk about resentment in his wife. There, I think it's interesting that you see his wife was in the army. Um, and Gal says, mm. mentioned, you know, at some point, you know, going up the chain of command. So I, I, it isn't obviously said, but I do wonder, like, was she a higher rank than him? Obviously, different armies. But is there that, you know, feeling of he, you know, the traditional structure of, of the stay-at-home wife and the and the ex-husband, ex-military, you know, powerful husband is undercut by the fact that she is also ex-military. And she isn't. You know, she's um, a... She's equally violent. She knows all about his activities as a hitman. She condones it and is involved in it. It's a very different kind of relationship than you often see in these films. Hmm. Yeah. There was... Um, it's not one of my recommendations for this week, but I was struck by what you are saying there about the... Um, sort of this, this ex-military figure. That's what Marvel's Punisher series is all about. And... That was I. I really enjoyed that series as well. It wasn't necessarily a superhero venture at all. It didn't, and it it worked quite well as a as self contained um, series like that. But it was lots of what Frank Castle was grappling with was this idea of having been in the military and what does it mean to kill, to be made to kill? And then suddenly, how do you go from being in a place where you're told that that sort of retribution is fine, that sort of violence is condoned, to outside of the law where suddenly you can't do that anymore and you're branded a vigilante? Mm. And that seemed to be a lot of... And maybe that's that's a lot of Neil Maskell's character's frustration. That sort of tension in the um, military identity that you have with the Frank Castle character in Marvel is something that I think gets explored a lot in the character of Jay in this film. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, that kind of... It's that dealing with that. And I think Gal is a very different sort of ex-military. Yet Gal feels very much more probably equally a horrific person, but much more easygoing in terms of his uh, his outlook on life. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, I, mean, I keep coming back to this idea of, of what the uh, the end of this film and, and the uh, his final triumph or final whatever you want to call the ending for, for Jay, um, that Gal is part of that. Gal, you know, he, the reason why they pick both of them is Gal's ability to kind of corral and and present him and he, he there, there was a a balance there you know especially in the scene in which uh they about you think he's about to go and kill some christians playing music in a in a restaurant that you really do think that jay's gonna kill them and he doesn't he just you know tells them off and leaves and gal who seems equally annoyed by them doing it just kind of you know buys them around drinks and leaves and he's much more relaxed i i thought he was definitely at least going to break his guitar mm. 
Oh, there was going to be some expression of physical violence. Maybe it wasn't physical violence towards the people, but it, I was sure he was going to smash the guitar. Yeah, and that's that was for me that felt like a nice little undercut. Having seen the violence of these men, um, I really thought. I mean, obviously, it's quite a tense scene, regardless. But I did feel like he was going to kill somebody. Um, and if I felt like, mm. if I, like I almost like the kind of you know that moment, the, the, the jump scare in all horror movies that aren't that just turns out to be a door closing or a cat going past and along those lines, something innocuous. It felt to be that mm. same kind of um, same kind of thing. Yeah. Now to go sort of bigger themed, um, how much of sort of shall we say the paganistic and religiosity imagery did you kind of get on with, as it were? Did you? Do you I mean I, for me, I saw a lot of religious themes and the idea of religious reconstructionism in in the sort of the overarching plot we see i've i've got my notes on this film it sort of descend into capitals um and by the end i was writing caps tense i don't understand this film procession with torches wtf are they representative as any demons with three question marks? And they were. I mean, that's basically all I wrote down for the last ten <laughs> Fair minutes. Fair enough. Um, but some, <laughs> something, something else I wrote down was um, something from Jay, and he says, in the context of they're killing, bad people must suffer. So there was something, something along the lines of retribution about what they mm. were doing. And they saw themselves as kind of weirdly at points avenging angels. No, I, I would, I'd agree. I think there's certainly some messianic kind of Jesus analogies when it comes to Jay particularly. There's a very obvious example early on of the stigmata on his hands after he gets cut um, by the client. Um, and that kind of festering wound there is obviously sort of, a, a, for me, certainly a, a stigmatic um, reference. Um, but also it's this idea of, for me, I, I really hit me this time was the breaking down of traditional power structures that a sort of a, a church reformation would come with it so if you look at the three clients they have it's a priest it's a librarian and it's an mp uh, representing three traditional existing patterns so, so religion knowledge and sort of you know the, the, the ruling government classes and i think it's very interesting that the three victims they have all are avatars representations of those structures and so to achieve his sort of Jesus and, and, and maybe, maybe more, more the Antichrist than Christ-like um, uh, sort of moment, it has to be him overcoming these um, three things. And then he sheds himself of all his worldly connections. So he's the one to kill um, Gal. He's the one to kill his wife and his child. And so it feels like the whole film becomes, well, the end is ritualistic and obviously and it's very, very visually, obviously, implicitly, um, explicitly ritualistic there is this feeling of the whole film his whole journey becomes this ritual um, of him you know, the, the, the first two victims thank him for killing them um, and whilst we never see the MP we, we, maybe we do we don't know which one is the MP um, there's certainly some people who welcome death as part of the ritual where they, the girl hangs herself and she welcomes death um, and it feels like they are willing sacrifices to this greater good. And there's this, this feeling the film, as its politics are more kind of weird, not sure what's happening, the, the whole thing kind of becomes weirdly ritualistic. And the film descends into these nightmarish tones. Um, the thing that really struck me, especially in the end scene, once they re reach the MP's house, is how many 
images are ripped straight from nightmares. Um, you know, I don't have nightmares, but the idea of you know a dark tunnel with people coming at you in the dark—that's a clear, irregardless context in this story. It's a clear nightmare image and nightmare situation. You know, hunt people through the right. woods and this kind of thing. These are all unknowable nightmare images, and it felt like it was kind of like the film reaches climax as the ritual itself reached a climax. So. If you something like that, the whole journey he went on, his his descent from he starts obviously angry, impotent, um, an abusive man. His journey through to the end of the film, at which point, at that very last shot of him, it's almost weirdly accepting. It just feels like he's a man broken. He has forgiven. He's forgotten all his previous and has become whatever they want him to be by rote of this ritual. I was thinking, you know, that that last shot of Jay's face is. It's really revealing because you think, like, where does he go now? That's what I, I was left with, apart from the, oh my God, what just happened there feeling at the end of the film. I was also left thinking, well, where can he go from this? What can happen for him? Mm. And that's something I don't often get in films, but I found myself thinking, what's it going to be like to him, like for him the next time he wakes up? Or the next time he looks in the mirror, or the next time he eats toast, whatever it is he's doing, he's going to have this on his mind all the time. And that, I mean, and that's credit to Ben Wheatley that this character of Jay lives on. Um, and that's how I, I can understand the film staying with you because it's not necessarily the violence that stays with you, it's the fact that these characters are so well created and that's what stays with you. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's. I, I have issued warnings to this film this week and last, and it isn't for gore, it isn't for blood, it is that kind of. That, the, 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 the only, a large part of the warning I issued was for the last five minutes of the movie. Um, but mm. it is a kind of horrific brutal scene rather vile I mean we've all seen things like Hostel that kind of bring that kind of that gore to the movie screen it's not that but it is that kind of punishing movies you experience and see things happen that are punishing and they're more punishing because of the social realism of the characters as you say like you, you feel rather than being some sort of you know super um, every man which American version of the film certainly would put Jay to be he's not he's this impotent rageful suburban dad yeah this is a film about someone frighteningly normal mm. being punished that's the journey it's that he take, takes someone from someone who is frighteningly normal to someone who's frighteningly abnormal and it's it's that descent into hell that descent into evil um from the mundane evil of being a maybe not abusive but angry husband and violent dad um, through Hitman, through murdering, to murdering with a hammer, to murdering with a wall, to whatever it was at the end. And it is this kind of descent into hell, first as a character, mm. but also as a movie. The movie does get more and more dirty and more and more brutal as the, as it goes on. And you end up sort of in this place where you're like, I can't, over an hour and a half, how did I get here? You know, mm. if you watch that, if you watch yeah. that last ten minutes, then match the first ten minutes. They're wildly different films. Yeah, and there's something about the look of it as well. There's, I mean, it's quite washed out at the beginning, but it certainly is the same 
realism, quite light tones that you have in Down Terrace, and then suddenly, not suddenly, but by the end of the film, it's it's a very dark and impenetrable scene right at the end. So the palette of the film has completely mm. changed as well. But it all happened gradually. You just, just, and I think that's one of the the powers of them. One of the sort of the technical abilities of the film is it just kind of you're taking on this ride and at no point i mean the the only that the the shock ending is um a shock but throughout that aside from the sudden hammer violence which i think is meant to be a shocking bit of violence the film doesn't take a wild step at any point it just just drags you down slowly Mm. so sam do you have some recognition for us off 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 the back of the kill list I do, and one of them I haven't talked about this much this episode, but Neil Maskell is one of my favourite actors. One of the, I think he's one of the best actors of the past, well, of his generation. Um, and the first recommendation is um, a series that it makes me quite angry to talk about in the way that I think. Rob may get angry about Firefly because why did they cancel it? Damn it. Um, and it's a series based on, loosely based on a comic book idea, but really not. And it's about social realism and violence and social engineering. And it was brilliantly directed and cast and I don't know why it didn't get recommissioned for third series, but it's two brilliant series, and it's Utopia from Channel 4. One way they may have got around it is they basically recast everyone in Inhumans, which is their uh, dystopian series about humans and robots. So maybe that's what they, they just rewrote Utopia as humans, and it's a similar sort of thing, tonally. My second recommendation this week um, is also a Neil Musk recommendation, actually, but um, I want to talk about this because it also stars Ben Crompton, who is the uh, Christian with the guitar, Justin, in the hotel. And it's a series that Rob and I have both enjoyed in recent times, and it's based on the novels by Robert Galbraith, pseudonym of J.K. Rowling, and Tom Burke and Holiday Granger in the series Strike um, which is in places different from the books it takes some liberties it sort of compresses some things leaves out other parts but you'd have to if you're condensing it into a TV special and it's just a very enjoyable watch. I love reading the books and I love watching the series on TV. Brilliant. I, I also, I, I was going to recommend Strike and then I was Game of Thrones of the same actor. But in the end, I've gone somewhere else. So my first recommendation is, once again, an actorly one. Um, and that's from the actress who played Shell, um, Jay's wife. I think she she brings a lot to this role, a, a sort of a balance of sort of femininity, but also a steely resolve that I think... Um, that uh, I think is is otherwise missing um, from this movie. Um, her name's Mayanna, um, and she popped up in a movie that I really, really like, but also now kind of never got much 
much love at the time and has kind of disappeared from a lot of people's aware radars. Um, and that's a 2008 film, Doomsday. Essentially a British ripoff of Escape from New York, a British government agent is sent into Scotland to rescue a strain of virus that's got loose in there. Um, it's a weird culture clash of, kind of like a Mad Max-esque um, end of the world versus people who've more embraced the uh, traditional Arthurian lifestyle in a kind of now sealed off and, and impoverished Scotland. It's a lot of fun. It's a good fun action movie. It wears its influences heavily on its sleeve um, and I just really like it. She plays one of the uh, cannibalistic, uh, Mad Mask-esque people called Callie. And I just, I really recommend this movie. It's, it's, I always say it's a lot. It's a good, fun couple of hours of your life. It's very pretty. It's very well shot. It's, it's well acted from um, the characters in it. It's not like the world on fire, but I think it needs uh, more love than it currently gets. My second recommendation isn't, I don't think, is a is a very obvious one, and it's certainly one of the film that doesn't need much championing in the same way Doomsday does, um, and that's the 1973 film The Wicker Man. I mentioned a few times in this episode about this being folk horror and the idea of a, a British horror movie that embraces the idea of paganism um, and the uh, sort of this folk nature that Britain offer has in our in our um, in a lot of our rural cultures and taking that to its more horrific conclusions. Um, this is a term coined by Mark Gattis in his um, horror documentaries for the BBC. Um, but Wicker Man is probably the most well known and certainly the most pinnacled version of a folk horror movie um but i think in the element of the cult especially the sort of the sacrificial sacrificial nature of the end of this movie um there are echoes of this of this kind of genre in in kill list so whilst the whole film isn't a folk horror it certainly tends towards at the end and i think that if that's something that you enjoyed or something that you were more interested in pursuing the wicker man is the place to start and, and probably the place to end it is it is the the folk horror folk horror so those are our recommendations for the week guys we will be carrying on with our um ben wheatley movie series next week with his film a field in england till then you can find us both on twitter at Pesci podcast you can find just me at life underscore academic and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. If you like our show, guys, we really appreciate the support you give us. If you want to tell your friends about it, we'd really appreciate you sort of spreading the word about our show. If you really like it, feel free to leave us a review or a comment or a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. And if you really, really like it, we do have a Patreon that we run for Kaiju FM. Till then, guys, we will see you next week. In a world that appears to make no linear sense, there is a time-travelling rabbit with an important agenda. What is it? No one knows, but it has something to do with basketball. Welcome to a reality where a famous pig actor turned despotic leader rules with an iron fist, and a psychopathic duck may be our only hope for salvation. Welcome to the Tooniverse. The Space Jam Continuum is a show where two brave souls attempt to create a cohesive cinematic universe out of something that was never meant to be one. Looney Tunes, from 1937 all the way to Space Jam. 
Why? Because in an era where all people want is a cinematic universe and reboots of old cartoons, we're the only ones with a resolve to combine the two. So join us every Wednesday as we explore the depths of the Tooniverse, slowly clawing our way ever closer to the 1996 classic. That's the Space Jam Continuum, every Wednesday at kaiju.fm or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and we advise you start at the beginning. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm.